Hurry there, me hearties, and welcome back to the Bible Pirate Podcast. My name is Matt Valor. This is episode two of series two, The Second Voyage. In this second voyage, we are covering a huge chunk of the Bible. We are going all the way from almost at the beginning of Genesis, from Genesis chapter 12 that carries on after the prologue that we dealt with in the maiden voyage, and we're going to go all the way through to Deuteronomy. Uh, So it's a massive chunk of story, but it's such an exciting story for me, uh, and I'm really excited about this whole voyage. In the previous episode, uh, the first episode of this second voyage, we just introduced the character of Abraham. We journeyed with his father and his family, Terah, all the way up from Ur of the Chaldeans to the city of Haran. And then how Yahweh called Abraham to leave his father's house and to journey south into the land of Canaan. And we read that very short piece of story through the lens of the pirate with Kester Bruin's book Mutiny. But in this episode, we are covering a much larger story. I've called it the epic of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And you may have seen a special edition of the podcast has come out between episode one and episode two, which is basically me doing a kind of performative reading of that entire story uh, from my new retranslation of the Bible into English, which is a work in progress alongside this podcast It's called The Unauthorized Version. You can find that at BiblePirate.com. Please check out the Patreon as well uh, if you can support that work, patreon.com slash BiblePirate. But that reading is now there uh, in the podcast uh, list. If you subscribe, that will have come through to you. It's much longer than the normal episodes. I'm trying to keep these to around 30 minutes each, but that one is getting on for two hours Uh, But it's a ripping yarn. It's a great story. I have really loved getting into it again. This is why at the heart I do this podcast, because I'm a Bible fanboy. I I love the story. I think it's massively relevant and engaging to the world that we live in. But I start from the place of just being fascinated by these characters, by the unexpected twists and turns of the plot and by the settings in which it takes place which are so evocative and part of what I want to do through this voyage is not just narrate the plot really well but also the settings to try and make it clearer where some of this drama is happening, what the landscape is like, the geography of the experience, what the light might be like, the, the, the features of a story that actually make it come alive. Obviously, when we're dealing with this really large chunk of story, it's uh, chapters 12 to 35 of Genesis. So it's like more than double the length of the entire maiden voyage. When we're dealing with that amount of story, we can't go into the detail of words or the construction of very specific ideas within very small passages. It's a different type of reading. Now, in the next episode, I plan to look very specifically at chapter 22, which is Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, And again, the reason I'm going to do that is because that has also become a very iconic and provocative story throughout the history of European cultures, at least. 
But in this episode, reading the whole epic, we're going to find ourselves looking for meaning in a different way. Part of the experience of the Maiden Voyage was to take stories that we knew well and that had concretely shaped the world in which we live and to say, actually, those stories could be told in quite a profoundly different way. In this voyage, particularly in this epic, we're taking some stories that we might know well, but we probably haven't heard told in one continuous story. Just because the way that the Bible gets used in practice is very rarely to do big stories. We don't read the Bible like we read novels. Now, there's big chunks of the Bible that don't lend themselves to being read like a novel. But this epic in Genesis does. So I want to come at it that way. I want to ask, how does this incredible unfolding drama give us stories from beyond the horizon? Stories that take us outside of the possibilities that present themselves as obvious in the day-to-day -day lives in which we live. The whole idea of this podcast, the tagline I use, Stories Beyond the Horizon, is a way of imagining a temporary space where a story disrupts the one that we live and creates some kind of unstable space. Unstable because you can't pin it down and say, right now we're all going to live here. But shimmering there in the breeze, seen from one angle but not from another, is the possibility of some different way of living or some kind of mirror held up to the world in which we navigate day in, day out. And we see something unusual, something behind us, a spectre of some other life, some other God, some other haunting presence that calls us to imagine that we could tread our paths differently in the world. So let's go back to that pub in Oxford that we visited in episode one of The Maiden Voyage. It was one of the first things in the Bible Pirate podcast that I talked about, and it was the place that C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien famously met and debated the fantasy genre that they were both having such a hand in developing. And I imagined having George Martin there as well, the author of the Game of Thrones series, and Moses, who traditionally is the one credited with authoring this entire story that we're going to cover in this whole second voyage. And I contrasted the different styles they take, so Tolkien's criticism of C.S. Lewis was that his stories stuck to an allegory of biblical stories too tightly. Tolkien said he wanted to write history. He wanted to narrate an unfolding drama that created more space for people to imagine what the story might mean. But Tolkien tells a story entirely from one point of view, from the point of view of a narrator. He switches around to different characters in different places as the drama unfolds but essentially there's always one coherent Tolkien bird's eye view a sort of ironic all-seeing eye watching over the story and determining where it goes so I contrasted that with George Martin the author of A Song of Ice and Fire which is the Game of Thrones stories and if you've not read them but uh, you've watched the TV series, the books are quite different. What George Martin does is to make each chapter written from the perspective of a character. Some of the characters are pretty major, others quite minor. And 
so from that you get all kinds of different takes on the same set of events that are unfolding. And that has some parallels to the Bible as a whole, just simply because the books are written by different people at different times, from different places, from different traditions within Israel. And so you have this very multifaceted approach. It's actually much more multifaceted than George Martin's approach, because even though he creates a character to tell a part of the story and then switches to another character, even then, still, ultimately, it's all written by George Martin. So then I imagine Moses also there, round the table, pint in hand in this Oxford pub, jibing at Tolkien, because Tolkien's world is entirely imaginary. But the settings of Genesis are real places. The characters come from ancient lore brought down through generations. But the whole thing, in the end, is a kind of historical fiction, just like Tolkien's. So I imagined Moses' banter to Tolkien being, I write better historical fiction than you, and I didn't even exist. But Moses is a good character to credit all these stories to, because that crediting is itself part of the historical fiction. The actual material historical origins of this story, which of course we don't understand completely, but according to the research that has gone on as part of some huge industry over the last few hundred years to try and uncover the archaeology and the, the physical origins of these texts, the literary origins, uh, the oral traditions through which these stories were passed down. We have a whole garbled history of different traditions fighting for dominance over one very small piece of land, trying to tell the history that shaped those hundreds of years. And eventually, after a centuries-long process of complex and contested editing, eventually the canon of the story is closed. When we're reading the epic of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, told so well by Moses. We're not reading about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, nor are we reading about Moses. We're reading about a community in the second half of the first millennium before the birth of Jesus, trying to establish where it had come from and therefore how it could live in the present and into the future. Now, when I describe this as historical fiction, I'm not saying that categorically nothing that's described in the first five books of the Bible ever happened. They might have happened. The point is we don't know. We'll never know. And it's not really important. It's not the point. I don't need Middle Earth to be real to find the story of hobbits meaningful. I don't need Hogwarts to be real to love the story of Harry Potter. They become real through the telling. Like Elohim speaking the world into existence. It's one of the most incredible capacities that humans have to narrate reality and so to create it. So there are ways in which this epic of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is narrating reality into being for the people of Israel reeling after their experience of exile but has also continued to narrate reality into being for the more than 2,000 years that followed. So I want to draw out some of the ways in which that has happened. 
And it's worth saying at this point in the second voyage that Genesis begins the Bible. And yet of these first five books, it was the last to be written. So it both begins it and is a response to it. And that means that we'll need to come back here much later in the voyage. So let's start with the perspective of the main characters themselves. This is a drama set up which makes Abraham central. And like every protagonist, however you feel about them, whatever reservations you might hold, you can't help but start caring about life from their point of view. I don't care about the Canaanites. I want Abraham to find somewhere to settle. I don't care about the kings of the east who literally beat everybody in the entire region. I want Abraham, the hero, to chase them down and rout them and take Lot back and all the plunder they'd captured. I don't care about King Abimelech or the Philistines. I just want Abraham and Sarah to get out of there alive. And I want Abraham to have all these many descendants he keeps being promised. I want his servant to be successful in finding a wife for Isaac from the house of Bethuel. I don't really care about Bethuel. I'm so invested in the story, I want them to succeed. And when Jacob steals Esau's right of the firstborn and then his blessing and has to flee to Haran, I desperately want Jacob to prevail against Laban, even though he tricked his brother and treats Leah, his first wife, so badly. This is the power of how narrative constructs reality that despite ourselves, the protagonist of a story tends to have our sympathy, to have our allegiance. But there are many things that happen in this story that still call that allegiance into question. I find myself in sympathy with Hagar when she's in the desert, and I don't understand why this voice from the heavens sends her back to her abusive mistress as if the prospect of many descendants somehow just makes that all okay or worth it. I don't know why Abraham twice, and then Isaac as well, pretend their wives are their sisters so that they can be taken by some other man against their will. I don't understand why Elohim dispossesses Ishmael in order to make Isaac Abraham's inheritor. I don't understand why Yahweh thinks it's good news to Abraham that his descendants will suffer for 400 years and then be fine afterwards. I don't understand why Jacob's main concern after his daughter Dina was raped by Shechem is that she'd been made unclean rather than the terror and subjugation that she'd faced. And so these heroes of the epic that I can't help but be drawn to also repel me. The constant battle for survival, the constant need for longevity, for descendants, for some kind of future, torn away really from the land of his fathers, Abraham is trying to take autonomy in a new place. The heroes of this story are not called the patriarchs for nothing. This is a patriarchal narrative that constructs a reality built according to the needs of the father. The experience of the women in this story, the experience of the slaves, the experience even of the sons, 
is all subject to the experience of the father. That is how the narrative is told. And that is the reality, the world that it creates. And it's an ambivalent story against which I wrestle with some unease and yet am totally compelled by. So these characters draw us in, but then there's also all the geopolitical ramifications of this story. Pretty much all the main players of the entire rest of the Hebrew Bible are introduced in this epic of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. First of all, of course, we go to Egypt. Pharaoh himself takes Sarai into his harem and then honours Abraham with all these gifts of livestock and slaves and Egypt makes Abraham wealthy. So before we get to Exodus and we have any kind of showdown between Moses and Pharaoh, we've got Abraham coming to Egypt in fear, but leaving enriched. Now, in relation to the land where all this drama takes place, Egypt is down to the kind of southwest. Uh, so the land of Canaan is east of the Mediterranean Sea. So there's a fairly straight north to south coastline at that point as the Mediterranean Sea reaches its eastern shore. And then there's a fairly thin strip of land until you've got the Jordan River. And uh, it, it starts at Mount Hermon in the north, which is kind of on the way up to Damascus, really, in Syria. But it runs down until you've got the Sea of Galilee. And then it runs down through these very sort of luscious plains the river kind of snakes around until it again goes straighter down towards uh, what we now call the Dead Sea uh, but I've called the Salt Sea uh, in the translations and then on the very south side of the Salt Sea again there were some very fertile plains uh, archaeologists reckon it's it's quite possible that there was habitable land there at the south side of the sea which has now been covered over by water and that that probably was the site for Sodom and Gomorrah. And then when you travel down further south, then you're into the desert. And on either side of that Jordan River, you've got two ridges of pretty substantial hills, again, running more or less north to south. So on the west side, it's what in this story is called the hill country of Canaan. And then on the east side, You've got the hill countries that starts in the fairly kind of lowland plains of Bashan. Then you're into kind of Gilead up into the hills. And then you're going south to the land which became the land of the Ammonites. Then further south to Moab and then finally to Edom. Then back over on the west side of the Jordan, where again you have these hills, that's where you have all the places that Abraham really travels through. First of all, he arrives at Shechem, which is about midway up the Jordan River in the western hills. Uh, and then you can go further south from there. You get to where he pitches his tent between Bethel and Ai. Then right down towards the very southern edge of these hills running down the western side of the Salt Sea. And we're down near Beersheba. Now, if you go west from there, in between that ridge of hills and the Mediterranean Sea, at the southern end of this small bit of land, kind of due west of the Salt Sea, that's where you've got the land of the Philistines. And so that's where you've got the Valley of Gerar 
where Abraham settles and then Isaac later, and they both encounter King Abimelech. So a lot of the geopolitical characters in the drama that follows are set up in these stories because uh, obviously the Philistines become important uh, there by the coast. Uh, round the other side of on the eastern side of the Salt Sea, you've got the Edomites, then further north the Moabites, and then at the top end of that sea, the Ammonites. Uh, so Edom, of course, is Esau. And so the story of Esau is a kind of origin story for Edom. Uh, Moab was the eldest son of Lot after the kind of date rape incident with his eldest daughter. And Ammon, north of him, was Lot's son with his younger daughter. So although these are sometimes allies of Israel, they're also sometimes enemies. And that kind of origin story for these people, you know, Edom is the one who's tricked of the blessing of the right to inherit from Abraham via Isaac. Isaac's blessing to Jacob makes him lord over his brother. It's a way of saying Edom should be subject to Israel. Again, the Moabites and the Ammonites, these are peoples that Israel has to fight against. So to create an origin myth that said they were both born of incest is a way of discrediting them in the eyes of those who hear the story. Then there's King Chedorlaomer and his allies who come from the east. Now Chedorlaomer is the king of Elam, which is basically Persia. And Genesis is the story that's put together during the Persian rule of the Jewish state of Yehud. So this is a pretty risky story to tell, that the king of Persia joins forces with the king of Babylon and they come over to Palestine, defeat everybody, but Abraham chases them away and defeats them. That's definitely resistance literature. And then, of course, perhaps most importantly of all, given the history that followed, is the story of Hagar and Ishmael, that Ishmael is the son born of the domination of Egypt by Abraham. Hagar is an Egyptian slave. She essentially becomes Abraham's sex slave and she gives him a son. And instead of that son, Ishmael, inheriting Abraham's wealth, it instead passes to Isaac. And Isaac becomes the father of Jacob, who is Israel, and Ishmael is sent away and eventually settles in the Arabian Peninsula. And in that story is an extremely complex and contested narrative about the origins of the tussle between the Jewish people and their Arab neighbours. And of course, Ishmael is revered much more in the Muslim tradition than in either the Jewish or Christian traditions. He's seen as a prophet and an ancestor to Muhammad. But it's fascinating that even from this Jewish telling of the story, Abraham's behaviour towards Hagar and Ishmael is questionable at best. But it's really only after the intervention of Elohim that Abraham agrees to send Hagar and Ishmael away. Now, in the last voyage, I mentioned Mark Brett's groundbreaking work on Genesis that situates the editing of these narratives into their final form during the Persian period as a direct response to the ethnocentric priestly policies of Ezra. 
who was separating families and sending mothers and children into the desert without any support, simply because they were from a different ethnicity. And as most of the listeners to this podcast are from either the UK, the US or Australia, this is a very relevant story to us because each of our governments are in different ways incarcerating or forcibly removing immigrants of non-European heritage and separating families in the process. But what Genesis does, says Mark Brett, is to challenge that ethnocentrism. It has to do it carefully because it's an imperially sanctioned priestly policy. Ezra is the priest when Nehemiah is the governor. And so Nehemiah and Ezra act on behalf of the Persian imperial state. So outright criticism is risky. But narrating a story which undermines that ethnocentric approach is, says Mark Brett, what the editors of Genesis are carefully doing. And this story of Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael is the central moment in that story. At least it is to me. I actually think Mark Brett doesn't make enough of this at all because this is the emblematic moment. Here is a man, Abraham, taking a foreign-born wife, Hagar, having a child with her, Ishmael, and then sending her away into the desert to almost certain death from starvation or thirst for obscure, arbitrary reasons related to a covenant. To me, it smacks of recent justifications of incarcerating immigrants, separating families and putting them in cages, where officials have said, well, there are laws in this land and people know the laws, so therefore it's right. It's like saying, well, Elohim did say the covenant with Abraham would actually be through Isaac, so, you know... And then Elohim appears to Hagar when she's wandering in the desert. She's got to the point where she's literally thrown Ishmael under a bush and walked away because she can't watch him die. And he says, oh, don't worry. Everything's going to be okay." But as a reader, I want to say, no, it's not okay. I don't care which God went and checked and found that it was actually on record, that it was fine and someone had authorised it. It doesn't make it okay. And it's that kind of reaction. It's the ambivalence of the story. And this is what Mark Brett narrates really well. It's the complexity in telling a story when living under imperial rule that makes this such a significant geopolitical narrative. It is getting under the skin of how we relate to each other. Who gets to be here and who doesn't? Who gets to stay and why? Can one group lay greater claim to a piece of land on ethnic grounds? And what if it turns out that all the people share the same father? What if one group had been enslaved and had a claim on the basis of justice? What then happens to our stories? That ambivalent tension is heightened by the fact that this is a story told after a history of being a main power in that land and now being subject. And the story is of Abraham and his children 
being the foreigners, the travelers, the nomadic outsiders, the pirates in the land. Ethics work differently when you're a pirate. When you lay legitimate ethical claim on taking some autonomy. But then when you find yourself playing pirate on behalf of the powerful. On the morning after the 2016 US presidential election, I landed on the tarmac in Santiago in Chile. I'd flown all through the night, so I hadn't seen the result. And as people began to switch on their mobile phones, there was a buzz that began to go around the cabin as the news spread that Donald Trump had been elected president against the odds. I went from the airport to a hotel where I met some colleagues and I'll never forget the conversation I had with some American friends, all of whom were distraught about what had happened. And one of them said to me, the thing is, I know that my friends and neighbours voted for this and I have to go home now and figure out how to live with them. The trauma of the political is always personal. Geopolitics and family life are always intertwined. There might be compelling pirate reasons to leave the father for dead, but in the end we share a world, the mess that is the family of Abraham. The messy story of a man who tries to take his own agency to find his own autonomy in a new land, but who subjugates others, whose children are divided, whose legacy is division as much as it is healing. This is an epic of individuals with epic proportions, of families with epic problems, and nations that follow them with epic struggles. Who are we? Because we can't live alone. In the end, we are all Abraham's children. So somehow we have to figure it out together. Thank you for listening, my friends. That's all we've got time for in this episode. I am so excited about the rest of this voyage. I'm so happy you're joining me on it. Please get in touch and let me know your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter. And please give us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Share the word, uh, bring other people on board and joining the voyage too. And I'll see you next time for more Stories Beyond the Horizon.